I'm glad you're here this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Um, this morning, we are beginning our series through Advent where we're reflecting on the coming of Christ and also his second coming, his return when he will come again. And so this morning, we are starting through this series over the next four weeks, and, and I know that there's only three weeks till Christmas, don't worry. But what we'll do over the next four weeks is this morning, we're going to look at the promise of a Savior Uh, Next week, we'll look at the waiting for a Savior, which nobody likes to wait, and we're going to look at some people who waited patiently for the Savior. And then on Christmas morning, or Christmas Eve morning, we'll look at the arrival of the Savior in John chapter 1, and that'll be Christmas Eve at our two services, probably the one I'm most excited about, one of my favorite texts. And then finally, the week after, on December 31st, we'll talk about the return of the Savior. Why does the first advent and the second advent mean so much, and why should we look towards the second coming of Christ? And so this is kind of the outline of our Advent together, and today we're looking at the promise of a Savior. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to be in Genesis, so if you're not sure where that is, just start at the beginning of your Bible, and it's right there. Genesis chapter 3 will be beginning, literally at the beginning. And it it may seem odd to some to begin our Advent series today in the book of Genesis, not in the Gospel of Luke or somewhere where we hear the story about the little baby Jesus. But the reason is very important because we first have to understand the why before we can understand the how. We have to understand the why. Why did the Savior need to come? What was the need? And so this is why this morning we're in Genesis chapter 3. And we're looking at the first promise, the very first promise given of a Savior that will come. Or as theologians call it, this text in Genesis 3 would be the first gospel message, the first gospel. And so simply put, we're starting at the beginning. And here's why. It doesn't work to start in the middle of a story. Some of you know this. You can't crack open the the middle of a book and begin to read in the middle of it and try to make sense of what is happening. Some of the storylines will not make sense to you. Things that people are choosing to do and choosing to say will completely confuse you. And you can't start in the middle of a movie. You can't walk in in the middle of a movie playing and try and make sense of that. Some of you have tried, but I would guarantee it's probably not really going to work. And you can't jump in in the middle of a conversation with someone and be aware of the whole context without knowing where that conversation has already been and where it intends to go. And so this is why we are beginning at Genesis, because you can't begin in the middle of the story. So if you start in the Christmas season with the baby in Bethlehem, you're not starting at the beginning of the story. You're actually starting at the middle of the story And then out of that, things are not going to make sense. And so really, we have to begin in the root of the story, the beginning of the story. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to go back to the beginning where we see the reason we have a need for a Savior. And let me tell you this, that although we're in Christmas season, we're in warm, fuzzy, hang up the lights, sing jolly song season, this is bad news Sunday. Okay, so I need you to get that before we get to the good news. We're going to talk about some bad news. And if you're with us for the first time this morning, I promise it gets better. This is probably the best week you could be here, but we need to talk about 
the bad parts before we get to the good parts. And honestly, I really believe that there are some really good and some, some kind of difficult things that we need to hear from Genesis chapter 3. And what I don't want to do, I don't ever want to presume that all of us have heard the story of the fall and really get that. That's an easy thing for us to do. For some of us, we have that Sunday school idea, you know, serpent in the tree, Eve is deceived, sin happens, separated from God, they're out of the garden, bam, then everything's broken. But what we need to understand completely is that the grand narrative of the Bible is really four categories of God at work. That there are four categories between creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, I mean, if you've never heard that before, that's the overarching narrative of the Bible, that the Bible is really a narrative about God and what he is doing in the world that he created. So let me tell you, if you're not a believer and you're still here this morning, what you're going to get to hear in this is essentially what we believe as Christians about why the world is the way it is and how God is still at work in that. And what you're also going to hear is what we believe went wrong in the world. What we believe went wrong, and I don't think that anybody here, regardless of your background or regardless of your belief, would argue with me on the fact that things have seriously gone wrong in the world, right? I mean, we can can tend to see it in all kinds of seasons, and we feel that sense that something is wrong in the world, that things have gone very wrong. And so today, you're going to see where all of that started, what the root of the things going wrong is for us in our belief and how God's response of a promise of a savior is the best good news to that bad news. But here's what I wanna do before we get to there. I wanna give you some overview. If for you, you have not heard Genesis one through three and this whole story of how we see bad news because in Genesis one and two, we're not to the bad news yet. And so we need to know what's happening before we get to Genesis 3. And so if you open your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the triune God. He was not created. He was perfectly in existence. And then he creates. And seven times in the context of creating the earth in chapter 1, it says, And God said... And so in this, we see the order of creation as given by God, where God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates light, and he separates it from darkness. And we see the first day. We see in Genesis chapter 1 that God creates vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And then God creates separation between day and night, and he creates seasons, and in this he outlines time. And then finally, it says that God created all living creatures, both for the waters and for the land. And in this, we see how mighty and powerful God is, how good he is, that he only needs to create with his voice. I mean, for anything that we've created, especially for those who really like to create their own thing during Christmas for gifts, you get tired. All it takes is God's voice because that's how mighty and powerful he is as a creator. And so God creates the earth. And then what we see next is that he makes man. And again, through the mouth of God, we see the triune God create, saying in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and perfectly 
As Moses writes down in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God outlines the creation of man, where he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so God sees it all as good so far, up to the point where he says, here's what's not good. Man should not be alone. He says this in chapter 2. And so he creates a helper named Eve. And Adam in this, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, we see the first poem, the first love song written as Adam sings, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then in the next two verses, God outlines the union between man and woman in covenant relationship. And from this point right here, everything that we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is great. Everything is good. God is good. He creates, and it is perfection. But then we get to chapter 3, and things change. In fact, from the header of most of our Bible translations, we can see that this is the fall. This is when things break. And for some of us in that header, it says the fall and sin of man. This is the first where we'll see sin enter into the world. And see, what we learn is that even when God creates and is good, and man sins and causes separation with God, God still pursues and promises a solution, which is a savior. But remember, this is not a license to keep on sinning. Well, if I just keep on sinning, God's just going to keep on promising. No, this is a reflection on the goodness of God, not your license to keep on sinning, sinning that grace may abound. But this is a reflection on the goodness of God. And so today we get to see how God moves from creation to the promise of redemption in Christ. And so this morning, what we're going to learn and really apply together in our outline is that the bad news is that we have sinned and fallen, where we have become broken and separated from God, but still he has promised a savior to crush and redeem. So we're gonna read in Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one, going to verse 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Don't worry, ladies, I'm going to clarify that responsibility. (laughs) And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, and for this time, as we go to unpack your word. God, I pray that that we would not be quick to try and approach this in a sense of looking at the bad and quickly moving on to the good. But God, that we would really reflect on what has been broken through our sin. That we can blame no others but ourselves. And so, God, I pray that as we look at what has happened and how the world has become turned upside down through the fall, God, I pray that that would really shift our focus, that in the midst of separation and being void of Christ, there is nothing we can do. So, God, may our focus this morning be Christ and Christ alone. God, in this season, when things can get so busy, when they can be so distracting, God, would you fix our eyes on Christ? So God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that through this reflection, that it would help us have a healthy and biblical framework that would cause us to just see perfectly the Savior who has come and will come again. So God, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So as we've now seen through looking at these 15 verses that we have just read, things have changed quite a bit from chapter one and chapter two of Genesis to chapter three. Because before this, the only, the only time something wasn't good was when God saw that there was not a suitable helper or a companion for man. This was the only time in God's creation that he looked and said, this is not good. But now as sin has entered into the world, things have changed. That through the sin of Adam, we ourselves enter into the world through this sin nature. And because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, we are separated from God. And we see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And see, this is not just because of a wrong choice, but what that choice points to and what that choice reveals. So see, church, what we need to understand is a very important truth, that our big problem is not first a behavior problem. 
our first big problem is not a behavior problem. If our problem was that we occasionally behave in wrong ways, we could probably reform ourselves or change ourselves in a way to get better. But our problem is deeper than behavior. Our problem is a heart problem. This is the bad news, that we have believed a lie, and in this, we have placed our hope in the wrong place and ultimately in the wrong person. See, what's true of all of us before Christ is that all of us in one point or another have stopped loving God. That you may not even have a personal relationship with God and yet in one way or another, you have chosen to stop loving God, to not love God at all. And so you see the thing that always replaces love for God, the thing that leads to this endless catalog of rebellion and sin is love of self, where we all insert ourselves into the center of our own world, that all of us desire to ascend to his throne, that we don't find delight in serving him. We're really actually just obsessed with our will and our way that we want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to make the choices for our own lives. We want to set the rules. And so in this, what happens is we become obsessed with our own comfort and our own pleasure and our own happiness and our own outcome. And this is, a, this is true, especially in this season. So I, I really want you to understand the bad news before we get to the good. Because there is no good news if there isn't already bad news. See, good news can only be good if it invades bad space. Good news can only be good if it invades bad space. There's no need for good news if everything's good. And so if our focus isn't fixed on the Savior rightly, then really our motivation isn't on Him. It's on whatever fills our love of self. And let me tell you, when you live for yourself you will step over God's boundaries and his desire for your life again and again and again because ultimately your heart is not motivated by love for him. And you and I can look around and we will continue to find evidence of this dominating and controlling and enslaving and life-shaping self-love. It's where people have inserted themselves where God alone belongs. This is the problem. And in fact, this is what we see happening in the text. This is the lie that the serpent is trying to get Eve to believe. Now see, here's what we need to understand about the serpent. The text here does not by itself alone clearly identify the serpent as Satan. But the rest of the Bible makes it clear that this is Satan appearing as this serpent. In fact, we see the true nature of Satan when Jesus tells us about him in John 8. He talks about the true character of Satan when he says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so this is what the enemy is always after getting you to believe, lies, Because if he can get you to focus on what is not true, if he can get you to focus on what is not true, then he can mess with who you are and what is true. 
So this is why Adam and Eve sinned. This is the bad news, that they believed a lie rather than the truth of God and who he says that he is and who he said that they are. Now see, maybe for you, this is how you're coming in this morning. That you don't believe what the word of God says about God or what it says about you. And maybe you don't know what the truth is. But I can tell you this, it is not the same as the lie from the enemy. The truth is the word of God that perfectly speaks of God's character, of who he is and who he says that you are. And I've mentioned this before in in the issue of these lies and some of these divides. I've mentioned verse 1 before, many times when talking about doctrinal divides, because doctrine has always divided And so this is the first time we see that false doctrine creeps into the lives of God's people. And let me tell you, ever since this point, false doctrine has been creeping into the church through false teachers. And really what's happening that's so scary is that it's not men and women who are shouting from the rooftops a different set of doctrinal beliefs. It's that they're crafty like their father, the devil. It's that they're not coming and shouting loudly. It's that they're in a crafty way, just slowly getting you to believe something additional to the word of God. And so this is how we see the serpent come in, as it says in verse one, that he was crafty. And he doesn't come in with an aggressive argument or a domineering tone, but almost a coward-like or gentle and soft tone saying, but did God really say? See, he's questioning. He's implanting a lie and getting them to question. And let me tell you, church, there's a difference between asking questions and questioning. And so this is where the enemy begins. He's beginning by having them question. And in this, what we see is Satan's first attack is leveled against the word of God. That if he can get Eve confused about what God said or to doubt what God has said, then his battle is already beginning to be won. So it was in verses 2 and 3 that we read, Eve gives her response. And she tries to repeat what she believes is the truth. And she comes close, but you can tell she isn't fully sure because she adds what God has not said. She says, neither shall you touch the tree. But if we go back, God never said that. But remember, Eve's ignorance of exactly what God said was really on Adam because the instruction was to Adam, and then Adam instructed Eve. But we see Eve respond saying, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But see, further, the serpent casts a doubt. In verse 4 and 5, he begins to twist the truth, saying, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, church, here's what Satan does that is so concerning that many false teachers will do. What the serpent is doing is that he is getting Eve's mind off of the consequences of sin, and onto the possibility of self-focused and self-centered love. And this is the exact moment where everything becomes broken, that through sin they become separated from God. We see, as we read in verse 6, 
It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now see, isn't this interesting? See, I think it's important to note for us that not everything that is good is for us from God. Not everything that appears to be good is for us from God. In fact, there are things around you and I and in our lives that although they may appear as good and desirable, they are not things that draw us closer to God, but rather they draw us further away from God. And so this is the result of their sin, as we see in verse 7, after they ate of the fruit. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, church, look at the contrast of Adam and Eve's state between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because back in chapter 2 of verse 25, after God makes Eve and he brings Adam and Eve together, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. But now as we see in chapter 3 and verse 7, It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So see, what's happened is the shift through sin entering the world. They've gone from naked and free to naked and ashamed. They've gone from naked and free to naked and ashamed. And what is lost through sin is innocence and intimacy. And so no longer is their perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship between man and woman. Sin has broken those relationships. And the void of intimacy and innocence has caused Adam and Eve to actually draw away from God. And see, this is something that, as we see here, this is so true today for some of us, that when we sin and we become separated from God, what goes, out the in, what goes out the window is our intimacy with him. And so let me tell you, if you are someone here today who is separated from God, either because you have not placed your trust in Jesus as your savior, or really for you, you've gone through the motions of being the religious Christian type, but you're just continuing in your sin, then you need to understand, as we're seeing in the text, you are existing in the bad news. You are existing in the bad news because this is what a life without Christ looks like. It's separation from the Father. And so this is what we see played out in verses eight through 13 as God goes to address Adam after him and Eve have sinned. In verse eight, we see that sin not only separates from God because he is sinless and he can have nothing to do with sin and unholiness, but also we have a natural tendency to draw back in shame. Verse 8, as we read, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, this is one of the symptoms of our sin. This is part of the bad news, that we no longer see and understand God through the lens of his true character, but through the lens of the lie we have believed. 
But here's what I find incredible about God. Look at verse 9 and how God responds. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? See, it's an incredible thing to note of verse 9, that the first thing that God does, even knowing that man has sinned, is to seek him. To seek him out and ask, Where are you? Where are you? This is the pursuit of a relational God. And we need to see him rightly through the lens of his relationship and reconciliation. That he desires repentance and return so that he can put our focus perfectly back on him. And so in verses 10 through 12, we see Adam try to explain his sin to God, but still he's even fully not owning it. We see that Adam admits in verse 10 that he was naked and afraid. And so because of this, he hid himself. And so God responds in verse 11 and said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? See, God knew the answer to this question. But again, God is giving Adam an opportunity to respond and repent. But because of the sin that has caused both brokenness and separation, Adam tries to deflect and cover up. That things might be restored, that things might just get better. And so in verse 12, he gives the accusing verse here, and he says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. See, isn't it always evident of our depravity and what sin does in our life that our natural inclination is not to look upon ourselves and ask, how might I repent? How might this sin be keeping me from the Father? But rather what we tend to do is we look to point to the flaws and the sins of others. How might their sin might have caused me to stumble? We don't look upon ourselves and see error. We more quickly look upon others and and dare we even look upon God. But again, in verse 13, God responds and he asks the woman why she has eaten the fruit. And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so in the text, we see that Adam pointed towards the woman and Eve points towards the serpent. And see, church, I think what we should learn from this verse is that deflecting the blame of sin will always still reveal a reflection of our own sin nature. And so let me tell you this morning, all of us at one point or another have grieved the heart of God. At one point or another, I told you this is Bad News Sunday, you have all grieved the heart of God. At one point, before you have come to faith in Christ, or if right now you are without faith in Christ, you have chosen your own way over His. You have decided in your hearts to worship self rather than Savior. That you have rejected and denied. And ultimately in this, you've put your hope in the wrong place. This is the bad news that we have believed a lie. And in this, we have placed our hope in the wrong place. But let me tell you, it doesn't have to stay there. There is good news. There is hope. 
And so God responds with a promise to reconcile and to restore. And remember, as we read these next two verses, God does this by his own doing. No one is making God give this promise. No one is holding him to this. He makes this promise on his own and he is faithful to it. To anyone who ever says the God of the Old Testament is an angry God doesn't really know God. Can I tell you that? Because God does not change. And so he continues to pursue. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. God responds to this act of sin and there will be consequences. And first, what he does is he addresses the serpent. He doesn't interrogate the serpent. He doesn't give him a chance to explain. He doesn't even ask him any question. He just says, listen, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now see, this is interesting. This is always interesting to me because the question in my mind always comes up, was the serpent not on its belly before this text? Did snakes have legs? Which in that I thank God because snakes to me are already terrifying and I don't need help in that department. So if you like snakes, that's between you and God. But that really raises the question, doesn't it? What changes there? And see, I think in in John Calvin's commentary, he gives us quite a bit of help. He says that what's actually going on here is that the serpent tried to raise up against mankind. And God says, get back to where you belong. Even in your rebellion, you'll be submitted to my authority. On your stomach, you will go. That's what you do. That's what you continue to do. And so in this, what we see is the Lord is talking to the serpent here, but he's also talking to Satan. And so in verse 15, he gives a promise that will ring all throughout history and will be the first time the gospel is communicated in part in Scripture. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, let me tell you, church, there is no doubt this is a prophecy of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan and his victory over him. In fact, there was an old Presbyterian preacher who gave eight points on Genesis 3.15. I think Stuart Robinson was his name. And he gave incredible points and he said, what's so incredible about this promise is that because men fell, God came as a man to redeem. And out of these points, he, he points them to a promise of who the Savior is. And so God announces to Satan that, yes, he would wound the Messiah. You shall bruise his heel. But the Messiah would crush Satan with a mortal wound. That he shall bruise your head. And so no one reading the Bible can miss the connecting threads. That God is doing something in the history of his people that has its genesis in the promise given in Eden. And so church, this is where we begin. This is where we see the bad news, but yet the promise of God. And so even as Luther said of this verse, this text embraces and comprehends within itself 
everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Why? Because it points us to the Savior. And so from this point forward, all things point to the promise of a Savior. This is the good news that will invade bad space. But remember, there's still consequence for sin right now. Because after this, it isn't back to the perfect garden with God. That because of sin, the separation was that Adam and Eve could no longer be in the garden. They were cast out from the garden because sin had separated man from God and things were broken. And we know that this is true of all of us, that sin is what has separated us from God before faith in Christ. And so we see this even in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so church, this is who we were before Christ. That really our reflection and our focus was ourself. And so let me tell you, there is an enemy that is real that hates you. But what he's content with is that you focus on yourself. Is that your focus would be so entwined and so put upon yourself. But God is not content with that. And so this morning, I want to remind you that reflecting on the bad news helps us really launch rightly into the hope that is ours in the promise of our Savior, Jesus. Because our reflection is on what has already come, that Jesus has stepped down into the darkness of humanity and brought a great light, which is himself. And so we're no longer sinners, but through faith, we are saved by the grace and the mercy of God, where he acted in the person and the work of Christ alone. And so churches, we have looked today at the bad news, the beginning of the story. Where we resolve this morning is on the promise given in Genesis 3.15, where God promises to send a savior See, let me tell you, what what we have really seen, even from our last series in the book of Malachi, is that there are going to be many times and seasons throughout the Old Testament when people are going to forget that. They're going to forget that promise. They're going to neglect that promise, and some are going to miss that promise. Let me tell you as well, this is not just something true of Old Testament people, but this is true even for some of us. So really this morning, I want to encourage you and challenge you in this season to put your focus on the Savior, to put your focus on Christ alone. And so church, I pray that you would be focused, that we together would be focused on Christ and in pursuit of him in such a way that things of this world would begin to fade in their attraction that we would be focused on him alone. And see, no event and no season will probably expose the heart of your focus more than how you approach this holiday. I really believe that. 
And I'm not saying that if you deck the halls that you're a nutty pagan. And I'm not saying that if you do anything, if you do nothing and you opt out that you're an over-religious Scrooge. I'm not saying those things, but what I am saying is that if the focus of this season is about you, what you give, what you get, how you feel about your plans, then let me tell you, church, you've missed the point. And you've got the wrong focus. You have missed the point because let me tell you, the focus is never you. And so you can try over and over and over again to make it about you, but I've told you time and time again, you make a crummy God. The focus is not about you. We have a great need for a Savior. And if you don't know this this morning, we have a great Savior for our need. And so as we close this morning, what I want to do is have us really walk out of here asking one question. What is the focus for us? What is your focus this season? Is it Savior or is it stuff? Is it Savior or is it you? So as we come to a close this morning, I really want you to ask that. That's the question that I would leave you with. What is your focus this season? Let's pray.